it looks like about 11 weeks that we'll spend here, maybe 12. Um, we'll spend a couple of weeks in, in an introductory, some introductory um, lessons. How do we read Esther is really going to be the question that we'll wrestle with this week and next week, is how do we read Esther? And, and then we'll, we'll go through roughly one chapter a week uh, after that and combining chapters 9 and 10 because 10 is just three verses. So today's going to be an introduction, and, and I've, if this were a sermon, I would call this the dilemma of the absent God. The dilemma of the absent God. Let's pray and ask for the Lord to help us as we think through these, these matters, as we think through how to, how to consider the Word of God, particularly some of these Old Testament books, these Old Testament narrative books. This is the last of the Old Testament narrative books, and sometimes these get neglected, or we just read them sort of moralistically. We look at... at uh, characters that we can emulate or Im- imitate. Uh, we look at, at other characters that we want to reject their, their life. So we want to look at Haman and say, well, don't do that. If you want to be a good Christian, don't be like Haman. But that's, there's far more to the book of Esther, as we'll see, than, than that. So let's, let's go to the Lord and ask, ask him to help us. Father, you are so good and gracious to your people to, to make yourself known. And, and we pray that you will help us to see, even in this book of Esther, where your name is not mentioned. Where not one of your mighty works are explicitly recorded, and yet it is clear that your, your mighty hand, your fingerprints are all over uh, the lives of Esther and Mordecai and indeed all of your people. So we, we pray that you will, will bless us, give, give us your spirit uh, to help us to understand these things and to delight more in your word and so that, so that in the end we can delight all the more in our triune God. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Does, does God ever seem distant to you? Or, or maybe even absent? I mean, as you look at the, at the world around us, you look at, at, a, at a world that is increasingly secularized, you look at the dark and, and sorrowful events in the world and think, is God even here? And, and maybe, you know, you're, you're a a refined and sophisticated and polished enough Christian that you wouldn't think that thought explicitly, or maybe you wouldn't dare to say it out loud. But there's that lingering kind of in the back recesses of your mind that says, where is God? And perhaps you might even be able to relate. There's a New Testament scholar who once professed faith in Christ, and then he has since abandoned the faith. He's still doing New Testament scholarship, but he's still doing it as an unbeliever. And he, listen to what he says. He says, I think that faith has to have substance. But once you start putting some substance onto that, you get into trouble. Faith in the Judeo-Christian tradition has a God who intervenes. That's what the Exodus event is. That's what the crucifixion is. It's a God who intervenes. And when I look around this world, I don't see a God who intervenes. I mean, can we relate to that at all? See, Isaiah prophet Isaiah speaks of holding on to a faith while facing the dilemma of God's apparent absence. Listen to what Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 17. He says, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. There's this theme that we see. We see it in the Psalter. We see it in in Isaiah. Uh, We see it in a number of places in the Scripture, even that language of God hiding his face. 
In Isaiah 45, he says, Truly you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. And I think we can all relate uh, experientially sometimes, both in the, in the corporate life of a church and, and, and the individual lives of, of Christians and families. We can relate to that feeling that maybe God is, is hiding his face or that God is absent. And if so, I'm hoping that the Spirit of God will, will use for us the book of Esther to help encourage us to think biblically, to think Christocentrically about God's presence as he strengthens our faith, even when from our, our, our human eye, the vantage point of our human eyes, we don't see his presence. But you may be thinking, well, how then can the book of Esther be the remedy to that? Because after all, Esther is the book that's sort of famously known as the book of the Bible that doesn't mention God even once. Doesn't mention him by name, doesn't mention him even in the third person. Doesn't record uh, any miracle. The book contains no account, no explicit account of God intervening in the lives of his people. You know, we've been going through Judges, and we'll see this even in our, our lesson today, our sermon today on Judges 7, where, where Gideon goes down against the Midianites with 300 men, and they, they, they pull a torch out, break a pot, blow a trumpet, and, and we're told that the Lord confuses the Midianites and sets every man against his brother, and they flee. Well, it's, it's, it's explicit. God is the one who has done that. That's the whole point of the text. It is God who has worked. We don't see anything like that in the book of Esther. We see human activity but we see God in the events. I'm going to commend to you a resource um, by Pastor Brian Gregory. He's a Presbyterian pastor. It's a commentary on the book of Esther. And he argues that this is precisely where and how the book of Esther can be such an encouragement to us as Christians. It's such a gift to the church. And he says this, the vast majority of people today will see in their own experience or see their own experience in the book of Esther. Much more than in many other books of the Bible, most people today have never experienced a conspicuous miracle or an indisputable divine intervention. It's probably a true statement, isn't it? Most of us have not seen water turn to wine or we've not seen a, something that's clearly a miracle. He goes on to say most people today live in a world that looks a lot like Esther's where events and situations show no obvious or blatant action of God in the midst of them. They show nothing out of the ordinary, nothing miraculous, and nothing overtly supernatural. On the surface, it often appears as if God is absent or hidden from view. Many people look for clues and traces, but find mostly that God is very hard, if not impossible to find. That's our world. We live in a very increasingly secularized world. We live in a world where it, it appears, at least at first glance, that God's not even here. There's, we don't have, we don't have uh, signs and wonders. We don't, we don't live in an age of, of prophets. We don't live in a time when miracles are being performed on a regular basis. Now, that does not to say that God does not work supernaturally, but we often don't, aren't able to perceive that. And Gregory goes on to, to help us think through reading the book of Esther theologically. Uh, our temptation sometimes is narrative is just to read them as good stories. I remember years ago, I was uh, assigned a high school boys Sunday school class. One of the first times I had taught Sunday school. This would have been uh, late 90s. And 
I did. I wanted to. I, I took a look at the, the Lifeway Sunday School material that the church provided for us, and I looked at this. And I got, I got high school boys, and this is the equivalent of finger painting. I mean, it was just it was very juvenile, and I, this is this is silly. And not knowing a whole lot myself, I thought, well, I'm just gonna I, in my own private reading, I'd run the Book of Esther and thought this is really a, a compelling story. So we just went through it, kind of a chapter a week with high school boys, reading it, discussing it, and and. And these young minds were, were blown that all this stuff was actually in the Bible. I mean, this, was, this, this is, has all the intrigue, uh, or even more, than most Hollywood scripts. There's a lot here. But we read it still, at that point, more moralistically. And, and thinking about the providence of God, seeing God's sort of hidden hand there, but reading it primarily as just a, you know, a, a moralistic Bible study. But it's far more than that. So Gregory... Uh, in fact, by the way, I'm going to commend this to you. There's a, a little series that, um, it's, it's called The Gospel According to the Old Testament. It's a, I don't recommend commentary series usually, because they're usually a mixed bag. You'll have one that's pretty good, and the other ones that are not. I've not read all of these, but I've read several of them, and, and they're, they're very accessible, even for family worship, private devotions. To read the, do you think about reading a commentary devotionally? Most of them, a lot of times, are very technical. This is not going to get into deep. You're not going to have nine footnotes on every page. It's not a commentary like that. It's, it's very accessible. And it's also, the idea is to read the Old Testament Christocentrically, to see Christ all through the Old Testament. And this one is called Inconspicuous Providence, the Gospel According to Esther. Uh, Brian Gregory is a senior pastor at Brookdale Presbyterian in Missouri, St. Joseph, Missouri. But he goes on to explain that a theological reading of Esther can be significantly encouraging to us, can be a great help to us. Listen to what he says. The book of Esther is theological. It is just that the theology is not on the surface, but under the surface. On the surface, the story is one of conflict between Haman and the Jews. On a deeper level, however, it's a story that evaluates two competing theories of how the world works. I think that's key. The book of Esther helps sort of expose to us two different theories, two competing ideas about how the world actually works. On one side is the apparent callousness, injustice, and cruelty of fate, especially embodied in the casting of lots. On the other side is the wise but secret providence of God embodied in the invisible divine hand, invisible in the events of the book, and even in the narrator's portrayal of those, of those events, which is at work even when we cannot see it. Even when we cannot understand it. And sometimes, even when we doubt it's there. Thus Esther, perhaps more than any other Old Testament book, shows us that God must be trusted even when he cannot be seen. And that we must learn to live by faith and not by sight. On the surface... The world may look like a senseless unfolding of injustice and fate, but below the surface is the invisible but providential hand of God orchestrating all things to accomplish his purposes. That's one of the key messages of the book of Esther. As we we work through this, we're going to see, chapter after chapter after chapter, the secret hand of God that in the end isn't really all that secret after all. But it, it's, it's, it has to be discerned with eyes of faith. The way that God presents himself into the, in the world is ultimately not seen except through his special revelation of himself, which must be discerned spiritually, must be discerned with eyes of faith. So how? How, do, how does the book of Esther help us to trust God even when we 
can't see his activity. I mean, how do we learn, and, and specifically, how does the book of Esther help us to learn how to trust God when we don't see his specific activity? When, when the, the reality of our, our ordinary lives, in our workplaces, in our extended families, in our homes, when we, we don't see the immediate presence of God. We don't see, we can't put our finger on something and say, oh, this is clearly, God did this one. Well, this other thing over here, the bad thing that happened, God didn't do that, but he did the good things. That's how we think of providence sometimes, right? We will even say things, well, that was providential. What we mean is, that was, that was uh, felicitous. That was, that was beneficial, suddenly, you know, unexpectedly beneficial. But when we have the, the blowout on the side of the road, we don't think, well, that's providential. But it is, isn't it? How do we think about the book of Esther with respect to learning to trust God even when we can't see his activity? How may the Spirit of God use this book that doesn't even name God or ascribe any action to him? How can that, such a book help us to discern God's presence? Another commentator, Barry Webb, says this. He says, God is present even when he is most absent, when there are no miracles dreams or visions, no charismatic leaders, no prophets to interpret what is happening, and not even an explicit, any explicit God talk. And yet he is present as deliverer. Those whom he saved by signs and wonders at the Exodus, he continues to save through his hidden providential control of their history. His people are never at the mercy of blind fate or of malign powers, whether human or supernatural. Something that happens as we read the Old Testament, as we read the Old Testament canon, we find a diminishing activity or miraculous activity as we work through the book, as we work through. You know, we, we, in, uh, in, even in the book of Genesis and Exodus, we see God speaking through a, a burning, fiery bush. We see his mighty hand and outstretched arm doing miraculous signs and wonders, demonstrations of, of supernatural power to the Egyptians. And even, finally, the Egyptian magicians sort of raise the white flag and say, we, we can't do this. But as you, by the time you get to the end of the Old Testament, there are no miraculous works of God recorded. The, the, last, the last of, the, of God's uh, miraculously working, the last of God even immediately speaking to his people diminishes, and then it goes to him speaking to prophets. And then by the time you get to Malachi, that's the end of God's speaking, even through a prophet, for 400 years. See, we see this diminishing pattern. So by the time we get to Esther, which is the last of the narrative books, um, it, it's right after Ezra and Nehemiah, and then before the wisdom literature starts with Job. But Esther is, is there at the end. And, and canonically, it's placed that way to show us, by this point in, in, in time, by this point in God's work through his old covenant people, his, his miraculous works have ceased, which makes it all the more striking when the pages of the New Testament open. And here is God miraculously speaking through the heavens, through angels, through Christ himself taking on human flesh and coming to dwell upon us. So it's, it's, it's profound that we have this sort of diminishing, 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 and then boom, here's the big revelation that comes in Christ. Pastor Gregory, and I'm going to, by the way, I'm going to use his outline here. He, he presents five literary techniques that the narrator in Esther uses. Of course, we, we, we believe that every word is God-breathed. Every, every word is inspired here. 
And what, what he challenges to think about is Esther is not only a, um, a, a story that's true, but it's a story that's written in such a way that we ought to marvel at the, the quality of the literature itself. And, and there are five different literary techniques that are used in, in the book that help us to see God even when he isn't named. And these are, I think these were, these were fascinating to think through. The first one is the use of coincidences. The use of coincidences. And, and this was easy to understand. Just the, the sheer number of coincidences as you read through the book of Esther, they just pile up and pile up and pile up to the point where you, you, you can't deny them anymore. You know, you, you can explain away a couple of coincidences here and there. But when you see them over and over and over again, you, you, you have no explanation. You have no natural explanation for this. We're going to see this, by the way, in Judges 7 today as well, in the life of Gideon. When you see those things that just, just happen, uh, when you hear the, see the text, it just so happens. Or you, you read through and you're... So Gideon is surveying all of these, um, the army of Midian. We're told that the camels are like the seashore. Couldn't even be counted. The, the men are like locusts. And, and then you think, well, how many tents would it require to accommodate an innumerable army. So I just have in my mind's eye, kind of as, as Gideon looks on the hill and he looks down in this valley, there's just countless tents. And somehow, just so happens, Gideon happens upon the one tent where two men are awake in the middle of the night talking about a dream. Well, that's a coincidence. It can't be explained. There's no natural, reasonable explanation for that. You, and even Gideon clearly comes away from this. This was the confirmation from God that God is, is going to do what he said he's going to do. Well, in, in the book of Esther, we find similar things. You know, we, we've, for example, the king desires, you know the story, but the king desires a new queen, and it just so happens that Esther is on the roster at that time. It just so happens that she finds favor with the eunuch. It just so happens she finds favor with the king. It just so happens that, that Mordecai is working near the gate when, he, when this plot is, plot, assassination plot against the king is being discussed. It just so happens that, that, that the record of Mordecai's good deed gets recorded in the king's book of the Chronicles. Then it just so happens that one night the king can't sleep and asks for this book to become. So he, he's wanting some you know, middle-of-the-night reading material. And it just so happens... It, it opens to that spot. And he says, wait, did Mordecai ever get rewarded for that? I mean, you see the, the coincidence just pile up. So as, as a literary device, the use of coincidences, even though God's name isn't mentioned, we're forced to accept the conclusion that God is the one who's orchestrating all of these events. There's no other explanation. And, and even in our moments of doubt, even in the moments of our, our weak faith as Christians, can't we see the accumulated evidences in our own lives? As you look back, I mean, just over the last, even a short period of time, the last year, certainly the last five years or ten years, and even before you were Christian, looking back at the events that God ordered, you think, there's no other explanation. All these things just lined up in such a way that only God could, could, could orchestrate that. Because you know, I know, I'm not smart enough to do that. I wasn't smart enough to figure those things out or put those things in place. And so we have no other explanation than the hidden hand of providence. But there's a second literary device. For you um, literature buffs, you, you, you probably will know the term, peripatia. 
peripatia. It, it's, it's, it's the literary device that shows a dramatic reversal of fortune. Uh, we, we watched a couple of Shakespeare plays a couple of weeks ago, and peripatia is a common element in Shakespearean plays, where you, you think the plot's going this way, and then all of a sudden there's this sudden reversal of fortune. So think about this in the, in the life of, or in the book of Esther. You know, Queen Vashti falls from favor. You know, she refuses to appear before the king, and she falls from favor, and at the same time, suddenly, Esther goes the other direction. She's, she's raised up. We have Haman's plot to destroy Mordecai. You know, he's plotting just, you know, he's talking to his family. He's thinking about all the, the great ways he's going to embarrass Mordecai and even have him killed. And then next thing you know, he's the one actually having to put the robe on Mordecai and watch Mordecai ride off on the king's steed and, and, and receive the honor that he was hoping he would get. So you have that sudden reversal of fortune. And, and maybe even most dramatically of all, at the end of the story, of course, Haman is building this, these super tall gallows and he has envisioned his wicked plot to kill Haman, to hang Haman on those gallows. Well, who gets hung on the gallows? Hang Mordecai. It's Haman who gets hung on, on his own gallows. So, so it's that peripatia, it's that reversal of fortune. And, and again, you have, when those things accumulate, it's similar to the coincidences, you see those things accumulate, you go, wow, only God could do this. Only God could do this. But there's a third a third literary device that's helpful is, is, as we see evidence of God's presence, veiled presence, but still his presence. And it's actually in Esther's name. In Esther's name itself. Esther's Hebrew name is Hadassah, and her Persian name is Esther. And her, the, the, the name Esther in the Persian is related to their goddess Ishtar, who is the goddess of love and war. And of course, love and war are two of the central themes that come through the book of Esther. But even, even more interesting is when Esther's Persian name is read into the Hebrew, it means, I am hidden or I am hiding, is the Hebrew understanding of Esther's Persian name. And, and we see this lived out in Esther's actions. I mean, when she becomes initially comes to the harem, to the king's harem. What does she do? She hides her true identity as a Jew. She conceals that. Then later on, when she's, when she's getting ready to host the banquet, she's inviting the king, you know, multiple nights in a row, she conceals her true purposes. So we see this kind of theme of concealment throughout the book. But even more significantly, the, the rabbinical tradition, the, the, the Jewish interpretive tradition with respect to Esther, sees in Esther a fulfillment of God's promise to his people in Deuteronomy 31, where he says, when, when inevitably they violate his covenant, violate their covenant with God, he said, I will hide my face from you. And the Jews saw in Esther a fulfillment of God hiding his face from his people. However, it doesn't mean God has ceased protecting his people, delivering his people but he is not actively present. Because one of the promises, you know, when, when Moses was sort of arguing with God a little bit about, about being the one to deliver Israel, what was the promise that God made to him? I will be with you. It's a promise he repeated to Isaac and to Jacob. He repeated it to Joshua before Joshua led the people. So over and over again, we see God saying, I will be with you. But that was a conditional promise. 
under the Old Covenant. What makes the New Covenant so wonderful is the Old Covenant was conditioned upon their obedience. So God may hide his face, saints, but he will never allow his people to be utterly destroyed. It's one of the messages of Esther, is that God may, it may really be the fact that we don't see the outward work of God in our ordinary affairs. We don't see that on the, on the stage of world history sometimes the way we might want to. You know, we'd like to see the fire rain down from heaven against our adversaries, wouldn't we? That, that'll happen one day. We're just not there yet. But when we, when we don't see that, we can still take comfort from the fact that God is delivering his people. The fourth one, the fourth literary technique, is one known as the omniscient narrator. And this is, this is common in extra-biblical literature as well, where the narrator puts, describes thoughts or intentions of someone's heart that the, the, a human being wouldn't be able to know. And, and, and in this manner, the narrator lets us know that it is, in fact, the omnipotent God that's involved in the events of Esther, because how else would we as the reader know what was in Haman's heart, for example? So, for example, when we read statements like, Haman said in his heart, well, how do we know that? How, how can we know what Haman said in his heart? Because God the Holy Spirit knows what's in the heart of a man. Or, when we, when we read, the thing became known to Mordecai. Well, how can that happen? How can such information come to be known to Mordecai other than my supernatural revelation? So we're left with the understanding that God the Holy Spirit is in fact present, working, if you will, behind the scenes, working under the surface. But there's another, a, f- a final literary technique that Brian Gregory takes note of, and he says it's, 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 in a, it's allusion, not illusion, but allusion. And it's specifically allusion to another prominent Old Testament story where God is explicitly and specifically mentioned and involved. It's the story of Joseph. And if you lay them side by side, if you lay the narrative of Joseph and the narrative of Esther side by side, you end up with a number of parallels. And so the writer is intentionally alluding to the story of Joseph so that the the inevitable conclusion is, well, just as God was actively involved there, surely he is in the same way actively involved here. And just to, just to give you a couple of examples, in the story of Joseph, both Esther and Joseph find themselves serving in the court of a pagan king. Again, in, in the life of Joseph, that becomes explicit. Now, we don't get all that till the very end, where Joseph declares what, to his brothers, what you intended for evil, God meant for good. Joseph recognizes the hand of God all the way through, all those events, all the way from being thrown into a pit and sold to, to, to Midianite slave traders, all the way to the very end. Both heroes in the story overcome early misfortune, and they end up rising to a place of prominence. And then God makes it so that they're able to use that place of prominence then to accomplish what? The deliverance of his people. Both have, have a turning point that revolves around a, a king's sleepless night. I mean, again, these, these parallels are significant. But even more than just the, the sort of the thematic similarities or similarities in events, uh, one of the things that Gregory does, and just for the sake of time, 
I'm not going to do that, but he's actually got a couple of charts in the commentary that shows even the language of certain texts. He'll take a, a passage out of Joseph and a passage out of Esther and put them side by side and shows that even the wording is almost identical in certain cases. So it's intentional. It's not just a coincidence. It's intentional that God the Spirit is, was leading the, the writer of Esther to write in such a way that the comparisons to Joseph would have been obvious. And, and we know you can't read this, the, the story of Joseph and not see the explicit working of God. And even Joseph's testimony that I can't interpret dreams, but God can. So it is God who's working. So with all these striking similarities, as we read, as, as readers of Esther, we, we, ha- we naturally come to expect that the same hand of God that was at work in the life of Joseph is also at work in the, in the, in the lives of Esther and Mordecai, and indeed, all of her people. Now, when we take these, these five literary devices together, with the use of coincidences, the use of peripatia, that reversal of fortune, uh, how Esther's name is used, and how that's figured prominently, and how this idea of, of an omniscient narrator that sort of lets us get into the hearts and minds of the characters, and then this allusion to Joseph. We, we look at all these things together, we begin to see the book of Esther is, is, is not only a wonderful story, it's a very skillfully written story. Describing God's, what we might call his absent presence, or maybe his hidden involvement in the deliverance of his people. And, and by the Holy Spirit's illumination and, and power, the, the, the book of Esther may end up proving for us to be quite the encouragement for us to see Train ourselves to look for the hidden hand of God in, in just ordinary lives. But also the hidden hand of God in, as, as you're uh, studying history, as you're studying, uh, whether it's church history or political history, the, the rise and fall of nations, we know from the scriptures that it is God who raises up and casts down nations. But as we read through those particular events, you will see things that, there's no explanation. Again, the coincidences pile up. So the book of Esther helps us to... The book of Esther is written almost like a, just a secular story. I mean, you could hand this book to uh, an atheist. They didn't know it came from the Bible. and They wouldn't necessarily be offended by it. It's just a, just a, a secular story. It doesn't mention God. It's not a, a, a particular, on the surface, not a theological message in it. But as we scratch a little bit under the surface, we see that. And by doing so, by learning those kinds of skills, it's the kind of skill that will serve us well in life at large. When we begin to see the hidden hand of God. We, but you have to kind of train your eyes to see that. In, in whatever discipline you're in, uh, regardless of, of what sort of vocation you're in, there, there's a, every vocation has sort of its own language, doesn't it? Has your own, you learn to spot things. And look at Brian, you know, as a physical therapist, you, you will spot things in somebody that I will never see because you've, tra- you've been trained to see things. You, you've, you've been disciplined to tune your eyes to, to see certain things. You know, Misty, working in a clinic, you're, you're seeing people all the time, and you could spot someone who's sick or, or things that I, I wouldn't notice. Um, I, I'm, I'm amazed often as, as with, my, with Gina as a wife and mom, she sees things in our kids that I wouldn't see. She's, she's, her eyes are tuned in ways that mine are, are not. And so regardless of your, your, your expertise, your vocation, you know, Jim Michael, he can open the hood of a car and see things that most of us won't, won't see. We won't, or he'll hear things that we don't hear as a mechanic. So when we begin to tune our eyes and ears according to the scriptures, 
And Esther helps us sort of think that way so that we more naturally see that hidden hand of God in all of life, in all of history. Uh, the work of, of his church, in the work of uh, even the civil sphere, where God is, is turning the heart of a king wherever he wills, like a river. But as we think about, um, and we'll tie in today with, with Judges 7, the sermon, God has often uses just very ordinary circumstances, ordinary people, ordinary means to cause his people to grow, to cause his people to come to faith. I mean, it is not by works of, 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 a, of an outwardly visible miracle that regeneration occurs, that a new birth occurs. But is that, is that somehow not supernatural? Is that not a miraculous work when a dead man can now see? When, when a blind man can now see when, when a deaf man can hear the word of God and believe it? Is that not miraculous? But we have to tune our eyes to see that. We have to train our ears to hear such things. So as we think through the book of Esther, I'm going to read, that's a long introduction, I'm just going to read the first nine verses. But it is, I would encourage you to, you know, it's obviously, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting story to read. I was, one of the reasons I, I chose it as a, a new teacher for high school Sunday school boys, and I, this was kind of like, um, those of you old enough to remember Welcome Back Cotter and the, the whole Sweat Hogs, that's what I had. And, and uh, to, to be able to capture their interest and attention, um, I wanted something, I wanted to go for the, something compelling, and, and Esther certainly is that. But as you read through that, read beyond just the compelling story and begin to, to condition your mind by the Spirit's help to see how God is at work in the most minute, and, and seemingly insignificant details. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia. Now, think about that. Think about your world map. That's a big area. From India to Ethiopia, northern Africa, all the way over to Asia, northern Asia. <clears throat> in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne... I'll skip some. From India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. In those days when King Hoasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed... The king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels. Vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his place to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. Now, let's try to apply some things that we've just, we've just looked at, some of these literary techniques. Uh, one that kind of jumps out at me is allusion here, not to the book of, not to the story of Joseph, but as you read this this first section here, is there anything else that comes to your to your mind that 
the narrator here may be alluding to. Matthew. Yep. Book of Daniel. Yeah. And, and if you go back and read the book of Daniel, is God present there? Pretty explicitly so, isn't it? He, he, he's, he's, he's all over that. And, 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 and from, the very, from the opening pages of Daniel, Daniel and his friends give verbal testimony about Yahweh. They, they, they stand on his law and upon his edicts. Daniel testifies before multiple kings. I mean, Daniel reigned for decades, was there for decades, and stood before multiple kings. And the other thing, one of the, the, the dreams and visions that can kind of get twisted around and muddied, but the, the, in, in the most direct way, Daniel interprets the dream as prophesying the rising and falling of many kingdoms. What was the last of those kingdoms? Well, probably Rome, but the second to last one was the Medo-Persians. And the fact that, that all this has come to pass. Now we're reading the book of Esther, and, and the Bible just sort of plops down and says, well, this is, this is where we are in history. And we think about the book of Daniel. That was, that was to, to Nebuchadnezzar, that was unthinkable at that point. And yet God had said, this is exactly what's going to happen. I'm going to raise up another kingdom, and then another one after that. And here we see all the pomp and circumstance. And I was, as I read through this, they, were, they brought out the golden vessels, and I thought about Nebuchadnezzar illicitly bringing out the vessels of the temple, but, and, and how Nebuchadnezzar stood on the wall and, and, and just took pride in all that he had built. And the Lord, of course, sentenced him to seven periods of beastly behavior in the field where his, his hair grew like feathers and, and his nails like talons. So we see in the book of Esther, all the, even from the very first paragraph the, the 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 fingerprints of god not only in the book of esther but in all of history so here's this mighty empire the medo-persians i mean in their minds they're the greatest ever and they're all subject to god's rule whether they admit it or not whether they acknowledge that or not and so all the book of uh, the, the events in esther work against that backdrop that we we are even though his name isn't mentioned, we are to behold in Esther the God of history, the God who makes history, the God who decrees and governs in all things from the least to the greatest. So I'm excited about the book. Next week, again, kind of part two of the introduction, is, is looking at Esther not only theologically, but explicitly Christocentrically. And how do we, again, train our eyes and ears, and for many of us, we, we've, we've come from doctrinal frameworks that didn't really look to the Old Testament to see Christ. And to see Christ is, is the main subject and object of all of Scripture. And how do we think about Esther Christocentrically? So we'll look at that, that next week. Any other comments on, on Esther? Um, we begin to work to Matthew. That's not a coincidence. He's a spook.
Just so happens, right? I think that Esther is is a timely study, timely in the, in the sense of, of of where evangelicalism evangelicalism is in, in large measure. We we sort of we're sort of straddling the line between um, to use the, the the old John MacArthur expression, the charismatic chaos on the one hand, where we're looking for you know a miracle and a sign and a special revelation, a word from God, uh, an audible voice at every turn. And the other end, which is a, 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 f- a functional humanism, it is essentially a, a deistic approach that's, that's prevalent in, even in our, our Christian thinking sometimes. We think, well, God is, God is just sort of, he's given us his word, and that's great. Um, he, he's told us to call on him in prayer, which is, which is good, it encourages us, but really God's not involved. God's kind of wound up the proverbial watch and just let it run. He's not actively governing and o- ruling and overruling in the spheres of men. And we can very easily fall into that, in either side of that, right? Um, and sometimes we can vacillate between the two, uh, maybe to lesser or greater degrees, but we, we tend to think in, in those extremes that we have to look for, even to make an ordinary decision about what house to buy or where, what city to live in or where do I work, and we think, well, i gotta have a, I got to have a sign from God in order to make that kind of decision. On the other end, we may be thinking God's not involved at all. This is all on me. Everything rests on my, on my own shoulders. Even my own sanctification is up to me. And we don't see the work of God. So I'm, I'm excited about Esther. I think it, it's, it's a helpful sort of recalibration of our spiritual instruments uh, to help us to think uh, carefully and biblically about how God uh, not only has created the world, but how he actively governs. And, and it's a good antidote when we see uh, you know, a culture in decline. We see a, a political sphere that's just... It's just a mess. And we can be tempted to ask those kinds of questions. Where is God in all of this? Um, you know, we have, uh, at the national level, choosing between, you know, uh, an elephant and a, and, a, and a donkey, and they're both godless, you know, pagans. How do we choose? How do we make those kinds of decisions? So let's, let's pray. We take a short recess before worship. Father, you are so good to us, and we... We thank you for your word. We thank you for the work of your spirit among us. And we, we pray that, that we will not merely passively hear or read or receive your word, but that by your spirit's help, we will actively engage with the mind of the living God, that you will transform our thinking, cause our minds to be renewed, cause us to be more and more conformed to the image of Christ rather than to our, our natural default conformity to the world around us. Help us to think in distinctly Christian and faithful ways rather than with our natural tendency to think as pagans think. To think with the darkness of a Gentile mind from which you have delivered us. And yet we, we confess we, we often revert to those, those patterns of thinking. So we pray that you will help us, grow us in grace uh, for the sake of Christ and for our love of the brethren. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.